it was a pretty average Thursday evening in my home sometime in the last couple months. Uh, Nikki was coaching. She might not coach on Thursday nights. I don't keep track of her schedule nowadays, and I get confused. She says, I don't coach anymore on this day, and I, I never know. But she was coaching, and, and I we went and worked out and brought the kids home, and we've tried to learn to get better at busy nights by doing crock pot, instant pot sort of meals. And so we had some sort of taco soup chili thing. And I get this obsession of the house needs to be clean when Nikki comes home because if you were to ask my kids, like, hey, why do we clean the house? Because it makes mom feel loved. Right, right, right. That's what I have them say. I know that that makes her feel loved. And so we do that. And so I get sometimes this pressure. Um, we need to get things in order and paper bowls, paper plates, whatever we can do to make it easier. Uh, and if you don't know, I've got four kids. The youngest one's name's Bear, and he has this bowl of chili. And Bear dislikes eating most everything at the weirdest times. And so there was uh, this this bowl of taco. Sorry, buddy. There's this bowl of taco soup that he was eating, and he didn't want to eat it. And so I said, "Okay, well, we'll go go pour it out." And I turn around, and he's pouring it into the sink. And that is a huge. You're laughing because you get it. It's a waste, right? Don't waste a whole bowl of soup. Someone will eat that. So why not pour it back in this one? So I yell, Bear, stop. Why would you do that? Pour it back. You, God, you, what are you thinking, kid? You know, that sort of attitude being very, very. Of course, then I go into the parental monologue that is sure to stir the heart and change the soul of why would anybody pour soup into the sink? My boy, you must pour the soup back into the pot so we can have more soup. And of course, at the top of my young's yelling and explaining this in all the parental grace, his soul is formed and he's welly, well, meaningful, tense, and everything has changed in his life. And oh, thank you, Father, for screaming at me at the top of your lungs in front of all the other kids because now I've heard you and now my whole life is transformed to look to Jesus and know how to save soup for others. And so we calm down and he sits down and we go through and at dinner time we do, hey, what are your highs and lows and what are your feelings? Because we're trying to teach our kids to be more emotional mature. Uh, we talk a lot about that, uh, do some research. Most kids are very emotionally immature. In fact, most adults are very emotionally immature. We don't know how to deal with our emotions. We don't know how to talk to our emotions. And in fact, most of us, our default emotion is anger because anger is a secondary emotion. We hide it. It puffs us up. It makes us feel in control. And so we go to anger because we're emotionally immature. We don't know how to deal with the fact that we're actually embarrassed. We're actually insecure. We're actually prideful, right? And so we're trying to teach that. So I started asking kids, what are your highs and lows and feelings? And it gets to bear. And he said, today I felt sad and afraid when you yelled at me. Oh, man. This was like five minutes after the deal. I got over it. We moved on, right? Don't don't put your soup in the sink. Today I felt sad and scared when you yelled at me. As a parent, do you want your kids to feel sad and scared when you yell at them? Come on. No. It turns out that I didn't have a deep, formative conversation with my youngest and teach him the right ways of souphood. Instead, I taught him fear and anger, and sadness because of my yelling. And so it turns out in so many ways, I'm still quite rebellious in my own life. I rebel against the Lord. I seek my own selfish desires. I raise my voice and yell and hurt others. But I'm thankful to have a son who can honestly communicate to me his feelings 
in mature ways. I'm thankful that him speaking truth in love to me helped pull me back from wandering. And so connected to that, we find ourselves in the New Testament. We've been reading through the whole Bible this year, uh, through the Bible recap, and we just got through the climax, right? King Jesus came, and we read through his teachings, and he he taught us how to live. Uh, We say the whole Bible is what? It's one unified story pointing to... King Jesus, right. And so we read this story and we've seen how he died for our sins. He resurrected on the third day, right? He sits in glory. He's ascended on high. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to him, right? He said, I am with you always. So go and make disciples. And that's what we talked about last week. We have these early Christian followers. They're called Christians, those of the way of Christ, those who are little Christ, they're imitating Christ, they're the church, and they're doing all these strange things, how they take care of each other. And we saw in Acts 1.8, Adam preached last week, you shall receive power once the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and all of Samaria, and unto the ends of the world. And these men have turned the world upside down for Christ, and that's what we're reading about. But uh, the early Christians in the church, they, they weren't without problems. Welcome to the rest of the New Testament. <laughs> That's why there's letters. We, we have Christians who struggle to follow the way of Christ, who argue, who get divisive. We have the same rebellious heart creep in. We have the same evil lie, this, this satanic lie that comes in. Ah, you could be like God. You could decide good from evil. It's actually all on you. And so they, they doubt God sometimes. But we have the Holy Spirit. The power of the Spirit, the power that raised Christ from the dead, dwelling in man. And so then we see the same Spirit guiding others to teach truth, to write letters. And I thank God that we have all these letters in the New Testament to guide us towards following Christ. That's what we have, and that's what we've been reading. There were several places we could have landed. If you're following our reading, it's okay if you're not. That's fine. Um, But if you haven't followed the reading, we read through what? Uh, Today was 1 and 2 Thessalonians, and then we read through Galatians, we read through uh, James, and we read some stories in Acts, and I think one other. So there's a lot. There's a lot to pick from. I felt like today we should just land on the book of James, particularly mainly one verse or two verses in James. Uh, But we're going to talk about We're going to talk about the book of James. We want to remember that last week we talked about what we're saved from. We tend to like that. That's the sexy message we like to talk about. We're saved from our sin, our death, rebellion from God. We're saved from uh, eternal separation from God in hell. We're saved from those things. What we don't like to talk about, what we tend to omit, the great omission of the great commission, is that we are saved for something. We're saved for thy kingdom come, thy will be done. We're saved for making disciples, teaching them to observe, to obey all things Jesus has commanded us. That's what we're saved for. And so lest you're here and you think like, oh, I've already, I've already dealt with that. I'm a Christian. I've already made things right. I accepted Jesus. I was baptized. We, we dealt with that. You're saved for something. You're not just saved from something. And so that's what we want to keep talking about is what do we say for church? What do, why do we get, why are we here? What are we doing here? Like, couldn't we just sing worship songs? I mean, say, hey, Google, hey, Alexa, play a worship mix. Couldn't we just do this at home? Couldn't we do something? Why are we here? Because we're saved for something. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. This is why we gather. We say in our church that we, we are saved for these reasons. We come together to worship God passionately, to connect with each other authentically, to grow, to know the Lord deeply, and to go declare the gospel boldly. Right? And we do all this because all authority has been given to Jesus. He's with us always. We go and make disciples. If you could turn to the book of James, um, 
If you have a hard, uh, if you have a hard copy, a non-digital pixelated flickering thing that you could turn to, that'd be great. If not, if you just have a digital copy, that's fine too. But I want you to have the Word of God in front of you. I want you to be able to look at James and be able to flip through it. It's five chapters. Your Bible probably has some sort of bold headings in it. Those aren't scripture, but that's fine. They help guide you, right? So you can get those. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one that looks like this in the seats in front of you. Grab one. Turn to the book of James, right? At this church, we want to emphasize the Word of God. And in case I haven't said it in several weeks, this is why we're here, to read the Word of God, to understand the Word of God. In fact, every service, we hold it to the rubric of, have we preached the Word? Have we sung the Word? Have we prayed the Word? Have we shown the Word? Those are the things that we're doing. So get a Bible out, turn to the book of James. I'm going to have to count to like 10 in my head because I don't give you guys enough time to flip sometimes. So I'll give you that time. I know I move fast. If you know the book of James, or you read it this week, or you're looking at it right now, because it has headings, there's probably not a wrong answer, because this is an open book test, literally, open to book, right? What what is the book of James about? Give me some, uh, ooh, ooh, Bible nerd, what is is James' real name? (laughs) Yeah, Jacob. Where's Jacob? He's not in here. Dang it, Jacob. This was my shot to look at you. Jacob, right? And do you know why it's called James instead of Jacob? Yeah, anglicized. Some people argue it's all from King James. I don't know. I read some pretty powerful arguments that it's literally just translation of language over time, right? And so it could be from Latin back into French, back into uh, uh, Old English, which eventually gets us to James from uh, Hamais, which is anyway. So whichever, maybe you side with one thing. I think there's arguments both ways. Either way, should have been called Jacob. It's James. Doesn't really matter. What's the book of James about? Tell me some things. Those of you who read James, just tell me something that's in the book of James. Faith. It's a book of faith, right? Faith uh, with works, right? Let's do that because we got that faith works tension. We preached on that a few weeks ago. What else is in James? You're reading it. It's in front of you. Don't look at me. Look at the book. I'm asking you a question. Come on, class. Open your textbooks. What's in James? Patience. That's good. Let's write diagonally so I create impatience in all the type A people. What? Words, right? Your mouth, your tongue, words. Words. That's a good one, man. Words. I'm going to also write tongue if that's okay. Um, doesn't matter. You can't read what I write. Huh? Yeah. Ah, yeah. Um, bias and non-bias. Let's write that. What else? What? Wisdom. Boom. Don't make me get out my list, people. It's going to be longer. Prayer! That's great. Yes, effective prayer. Oh, man. Oh, gosh. What else? We need one right here. Judging. Yeah, who said that? Over there. Nailed it. That's good. I like that. Judging. Submission. What else? What? Money. Oh, I'm just going to do a dollar sign. Two of them. Three of them. Hundo. You know what I mean? Uh, I don't know. Completion, Trinity, money, whatever. Uh, Someone said something else before money. Submission. All right. Anything else before we move on? Anyone just itching? The introverts that have taken a while to get here? Anyone? Pride. What? Favoritism. Favoritism. Yeah. I'm going to write fave and pride. That's good. We filled up the chalkboard. That's good enough, right? 
Say that's good or we're not going to move on. Say it like you mean it. That's good. Got it. Thank you. Okay, good. Oh, man. So this is what James is about. James has all these different thoughts. In fact, James comes in and says, hey, this is how you follow Christ. And interesting enough, do you know how James kind of structures his writing? What did it look like? Did anyone study this? I think they mentioned Bible recap, maybe. He shapes it similar to the Sermon on the Mount. You guys remember last year we went through the Sermon on the Mount? Because he's the brother of Jesus, right? There's two kind of flavors that James goes with when he's writing. He's flavored like wisdom literature, and he's flavored like the Sermon on the Mount. And there's so many things you read in there, you're like, oh man, this sounds like what Jesus said. And then you look at the cross-reference, you're like, oh my gosh, Jesus said this. It's like James was listening. James was paying attention to his brother, saying, hey, this is what's going on. So exciting. Turn to James 5, verses 19 through 20. These are the last two verses of James. Verse 19. My brothers, also included as sisters, my family, those listening. My brothers and sisters, if you will. If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would guide us as we discuss your word. May your word bear its weight on us and may your spirit speak truth. May we have ears to hear what your spirit tells us. Teach us to live as your body. Teach us to to accept the unity of your spirit and lean into that, God. Show us what it looks like to not wander, but to rescue those who are wandering in you. In Jesus' name, amen? Amen. So instead of some farewell that you get in a lot of Old uh, New Testament letters, right? It's not like, hey, I'll, I'll see you soon. Love you. Grace and peace in Jesus. Be with you in a little bit, fam. Love you. You don't get that. James has all this list of stuff about being biased. He's got all these things. He talks about money and, and, and words and tongue and, and submission and patience and faith versus works. He has all these things to say. And then he ends with, if anyone among you wanders from the truth. If anyone wanders from the... Why? Why does James end with this? Because all of James has been about wandering from the truth. I would argue that James is so concerned with a church who's claiming to follow Christ but continually struggles with wandering and that they're not taking enough concern for each other that James has to end his letter by saying, hey, you have to take care of each other. If anyone wanders, you must rescue and restore them. If they wander from the truth, it's on you. You guys need to take care of each other. See, James has already told us in his whole book about wandering He talks about how we wander into doubt. We wander into temptation to fulfill our own desires that the Lord could not take care of us. We wander away from graciousness and patience into all kinds of ungodly anger. We wander from humble love, commitment, and sacrifice for each other into prejudice and favoritism. We wander into separation from what we say we believe and the way we actually live our life. Hypocrisy. We wander from trusting and depending on the Lord into trusting and hoping in ourselves, our ambitions, our plans, a self-orbit all about us. We wander away from unity and peace in Christ with each other and all sorts of conflicts. 
We wander from thankfulness and generosity into unthankful grumbling and selfishness. We wander into unbiblical and unhelpful talk. We wander into desperate and prayerless living instead of looking to Jesus and resting in Him. We wander from honest and authentic relationships with each other into some veneer relationship which we can't actually live and grow together in Christ. James reminds us of the ever-present posture of our hearts that we are wanderers. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. You know the song? We just sang it. It's called Come My Found. Prone to leave the God I love. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. That's, that's my posture. That's my default posture is to wander. What do we wander from? What does he say? Those who wander from the truth. The truth. This is a phrase that James only uses a couple times in his book because he assumes you know it. He assumes when you say truth, you know exactly what he's talking about. Not some vague, your truth is your truth. Whatever you think is true, whatever your cell phone told you this moment, whatever meme you just clicked on or liked or shared or whatever TikTok video that just inspired you at the moment, that truth, that's not what James is talking about. He defines truth in an entire argument about temptation and selfish living. Look at James chapter 1, verses 14. He argues that we're not tempted by God. God's not pulling us away to wander. He says, but each person is tempted when he was lured and enticed. This is lustful, intimate language. You have this passionate, intimate language in you, this thing is, ah, I'm lured and enticed. Each one is tempted when he is lured and enticed by their own desires. Then when that desire has conceived, again, intimate language, it gives birth to sin. Have you been in the birthing room? Have you seen those videos in elementary or middle school? Not in elementary school, in middle school? Have you seen how the birthing things works? Wouldn't it be awful to see a birth to sin? It's his language. He's doing this intentionally. It's supposed to be uncomfortable. It's supposed to be like, wait, wait, wait. We waited nine months for this big, beautiful thing. It's sin gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, this birth, this baby of sin that comes from from us being drawn away by our own desires, this baby of sin, when it's fully grown, it brings forth death. It kills you. Usurps you. You die. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is coming from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of His own will, will, He brought us forth by the word of truth. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. And of His own will, He brought forth the truth. He's talking about Jesus. Why? Because James starts off in chapter 1 and he says what? What is 1-1? Someone just open their Bible. James chapter 1, verse 1. What does it say? James, a of God and of everything James is about to say. He's saying, hey, it's because I'm a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. This truth that he's talking about is Jesus Christ. So he says the word of truth 
verse 18, of his own will, this father of lights brought us forth by the word of his truth. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God. James is picking up all this language. King Jesus, the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creation. He's got a new creation. He's got a new humanity. And those of us who put faith in Jesus, we are that. We're the first fruits. We're the first ones of King Jesus, of his word. Because he's the creator. All good things come from him. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Someone needs to hear that this morning. That's why I left it in. I could have skipped those two verses because, you know, he has another point he makes right after that. But I think it's, it's important. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Are you an angry person? How would you know? Ask someone you love. Am I an angry person? Am I, am I known for ungentleness, for flying off the handle? Is my default posture going from zero to 90 to 120 immediately? Or do I get some, some ground in between? Am I an angry person? The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Verse 21, therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word. It's the word of truth. So the word he's talking about, Jesus which is able to save your souls. James recognizes that Jesus saves your soul, that his word implanted in you, implanted again, intimate seed or language, right? When you're drawn away by your own desires, when you're drawn away by selfishness and you say, I'm lured away and I'm going to give forth to what I desire, my framework, how I want to live life. I can be like God. I can decide good from evil. That only brings forth sin and that only leads to death. But the implanted word... Jesus Christ, that is what saves your soul. Catch the beauty of the words that James is choosing here. He's intentionally using this poetic, this hyperbolic, this intense language to make you understand that sin is death. Your sin is killing you. You are full of sin. You're prone to wander. And it's killing you. Only the implanted word can save your soul. Only Jesus can save your soul. Sin is a terminal sickness we all have. Selfish rebellion against the Father and His good design. But the Father gives good gifts. Amen? The Father gives good gifts. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave. Does it sound familiar? It feels like we're saying the same thing every week up here. God gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him won't die but they'll have eternal life. Sin leads to death. It gives birth to death. Your selfish desires, your temptations, it draws you away. It gives birth to death. But the gift of God is eternal life. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. How often have you wanted something really, 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 really bad, only to find that it's ultimately not what you needed or wanted long-term, turned out to be less than the most important thing in the world? We we don't want to be that honest here, and that's fine. You don't have to raise your hand or anything. But I'm sure there's something. The new cell phone, the, the three or four shares you got on Facebook that were really important to you, or that time you had that really good quip to that family member that, ooh, shut everyone up. Hey, Thanksgiving, anyone? You're like, ah, eat that. Your political views are thwarted in my brilliant schemes, right? And then it doesn't really lead to anything. It doesn't mean anything. Maybe, maybe uh, the Christmas season is a good reminder of that. You build up all this empire of things, like I'm going to give all these things so that I feel really good. <laughs> or I'm going to build this perfect family moment, and it's never quite what you want. 
Maybe your marriage is that way. You really expected it to be something, and it's not. Dating. Man, really, if I just get this guy, if I just get this girl, just not ending up what you thought it would be. Sex. So many of us just, oh man, once God allows me to through marriage, it's gonna do a lot of marriage counseling in my life. Do you know how many people just say they're super satisfied with their sexual life? Very, very few. In fact, when we ask that, almost no one says they're satisfied, and it's a big point of, of the, uh, conflict and tension, right? And there's a whole lot of host of other things. We're not doing a marriage comments right now, but turns out that sex alone is not the big goal of marriage, and it doesn't make everything better. Some of us, uh, drugs, alcohol, a particular image. If people just think about me this way, if I lose this amount of weight, if I could deadlift this much stuff. New boots, huh? Just new boot goofing up here. No big deal. You don't have to say anything about my new boots. I'll get over it. Everything I thought they'd be. What about the ideal family? Man, if my family's like this. What's worse than that? What about the endless pursuit of some ideal? This, this personal desire for what we think is good that we'll never fully obtain. And it's just constantly moving and shaping. And we're just chasing after these things over and over and over. It's broken. It's incomplete. We just don't know. We just keep pursuing it. Proverbs 16.25. There is a way that seems right to a man, but it ends in what? Death. This proverb is repeated twice in Proverbs, and there's actually a handful of times a similar thing is repeated. It's this idea that something you really, 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 really want, and it's a really great investment, and oh, baby, it's the best thing ever, and oh, I'll never have to buy another one. Oh, this thing that's really important, it seems right to you. This is what I want. It ends in death. It ends in death. Is it possible that the way you think is right, the things you're doing in your life, the things you bank on, is just leading to death? How would you know? How would you know you're pursuing something like that? How would you know if you're wandering from the truth? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. We are prone to wander, but we are called to rescue and restore in Christ. Calling brothers and sisters who wander into a right relationship with God to call them back to say, look to Jesus. These selfish desires you're chasing after, these things that look good to you, they're ultimately bringing death. This way that you're constantly obsessed with yourself on your image, this way that you're passively engaged in everything around you, this way that you act in your marriage, this way that you act in parenting, this way that you act in your daily relationship, it's not okay. You're wandering. We're called to rescue wanders. Because every good and perfect gift comes from the Father. We point them to looking to Christ. Not the pursuit of desires that lead to sin and death. The anger, the jealousy, the bitterness, the division amongst others. All these things we list. James is getting in our business saying, Hey, you see all these things I talk about are bad? Rescue each other from wandering. Because they wander from the truth. And it's only the truth that can save the soul. The implanted word of truth. King Jesus. In the garden, what, what evil did... What the serpent did that was so crafty, so brilliant, was he made death look like life. Hey, this thing that God said not to do, you won't die. Did God say, hold on, did God say you would die? No, 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 no. You'd be woke, dude. 
Your eyes would be open. You could see rightly. You could, you could know what no one else knows. You'd be above everyone else. You could decide good from evil. You won't die. You'll be like God. Who doesn't want that? It's every superhero movie. Like, do, do you want to do God mode? Do you want to live life being one cut above everyone else? Wouldn't that be awesome? It sounds so great. But it leads to death. What things has evil lied to you about? Because he's the father of lies. I hope, I hope that we can shepherd a consistent posture in your life to open your hands to say, what could I be missing? What am I holding so tightly to that could be a lie? And I'm sorry if every time I preach, I'm just creating a weird insecurity in you. But we pray that God sows a healthy insecurity in you to quit holding on to things that are veneer, that are trash, that are junk, that are fading away, that are lies. Things you're just clinging to. Things I'm just clinging to. It feels so powerful and good to stop the kids from doing something by yelling because I'm bigger and more powerful than them. It never changes their hearts. Never changes their hearts. And I need to learn that. I need to constantly learn that the way I treat my kids reflects the Father and that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father. And so I need to reflect the gentleness, the grace of the Father. Evil made death look like life, and he's continuing to do that in our lives now. Wandering is a slow and steady fade, is it not? Like when you see someone wandering off trail, it's not like all of a sudden, poof, they're 15 miles that way. They got 15 miles that way one step at a time. That's why we sing the song. It's one of my favorite songs. Step by step, you'll lead me and I'll follow you all my days. If you don't know it, look it up. It's a great song by Rich Mullins. It says, oh God, you are my God and I will ever praise you. I will seek you in the morning. I will learn to walk in your ways and step by step, you'll lead me. That's exactly how evil leads us to. Step by step, through that subtle bitterness, through that subtle anger, through how alluring your cell phone happens to be every time we're preaching, how exciting it is to focus on yourself or get distracted while we're worshiping. This whole service becomes nothing to you because you're so distracted and busy. And it seems fine. No big deal. It leads to death. Hear me. I love you. God wants you to know that he has good and perfect things for you. And we're prone to wander. Evil's constantly drawing us away. There's a way that seems right to a man, but it ends in death. So if we're called to rescue wanderers, that's it. That's enough on we're wandering. We're wandering. That's a depressing message. Sorry, we all messed up. Dang it. Okay, but what James is saying is to rescue wanderers. That's what he's saying. How do you rescue a wanderer? Here's the truth. You can't rescue and restore what you don't know. You can't rescue and restore what you don't know. One, step one, point one. See this? I got two points. Get ready. Here's point one. It even says number one on the slide. Some of you type A people are like, finally, yes, number one. Here it is. Do you know the truth? Hear me. Stop trying to rescue and restore other people in your own life with your own wisdom and ideals. Like that, that's, that's just your own selfish desire still playing out vicariously living in someone else. Oh, I've messed up my own life, but if I give you this little quip, this little piece of information, this oh, little go get them, pull up your bootstraps thought, then you feel motivated and I feel motivated and I'm a good counselor. They've wandered from the truth. They haven't wandered from your great ideals. Mom, dad, aunt, uncle, grandma, grandpa, we're talking to you. Are we restoring people with the truth of Jesus Christ? Church, 
Are we restoring people to the truth of Jesus Christ? Are we just trying to give them our little quips, our little answers, our little one-liners? If it doesn't come back to King Jesus and his word, it's not eternal. Don't hang on to it. It's a lie. It can be twisted. Better people than you and I have twisted better things, better thoughts, better one-liners. You have to know the truth if you're going to rescue and restore people. What have they wandered from? He says it. What have they wandered from? The truth, right? And what is the truth? The truth of Jesus Christ. It's what he established. So what are we rescuing and restoring them to? If they're wandering from the truth, we must be restoring them to the truth. We have to be pointing them to Jesus. Number one, you have to know the truth if you're going to do what James is saying. Number two, you have to know the wanderer. Church, this is where we drill in. We say we're supposed to connect with each other authentically. And, and I'm sorry, I've been in church situations my whole life, in several different churches. And I've been in the West, actually, my whole life. Welcome to 21st century Western America. This is the lie that evil attacks the hardest. We don't need to have real authentic relationships with each other. We don't need each other. We just need likes on Facebook, pad answers, a false ideal of family that makes us feel good a few times a year and we gather. But we don't really need each other. We need to isolate and do me. I've got my thoughts. How many things in your life do you start chunking off? Well, this is just what I believe, and they believe something different, so got to stay in my lane. I met someone uh, recently as we were trick-or-treating, and, and we were meeting these different people on our street, and this guy said, well, yeah, I mean, do, just do whatever. Whatever makes you happy. Whatever makes anyone happy. That's all we're here for, just to make people happy. Whatever makes us happy. And it was, such an, it was so interesting to hear an elderly person just, just tell me, as a, here, young buck with a young family, just do whatever makes you happy. That's the goal in life. Do whatever makes you happy. We have to know the truth and we have to know the wander because we're so isolated. Do you have a real authentic relationship with your brother and sister in Christ to know if they are wandering? Do you allow others to know you well enough to know if you're wandering? This is why we say we connect with each other authentically. This is why we have life groups so that we can do. We can't have authentic life to the fullest degree in here. We can't have full so we don't have time. I can't ask each one of you, how's your relationship with Jesus? Let's talk about it. We don't have time for that right? We'd all just, we, the power would go out on the microphones, the lights would burn out, we'd just have to go. So we have life group. This is why we share authentic life together, because we can't restore and rescue if we don't know. If you don't know someone, you can't know if they're wandering. If they don't know you, do you allow other people to have that relationship? We must break free from these terminal, casual relationships we have and want for more with each other, eternally more. It should be the case that when we celebrate the Lord's Supper here in a minute, it feels slightly incomplete. We wonder why we're not having a big lunch together. We wonder why we're not then having a big dinner together. We wonder why we're not just, let's just stay and hang out. Let's just keep going. We should pine for eternity with each other because that's what we have in the Holy Spirit. A relationship in which we don't get sick of each other, where we don't compartmentalize and say, oh, these are my church friends, I've got my real friends, I've got my family, but actually a real authentic life where we share every part, where we gather together eternally as one body. We are called to eternal unity. I have so many verses for this because this is my thing. Next year when we preach on Worship Connect, Grow, Go, and the four-week services, of course I'm going to preach on Connect because this is my thing. Adam's got to preach on Go because he's the missionary guy. He gets pumped about that. Great for you. But I care so much about you sharing life together because I've got stories about how stupid and messed up my life would be without King Jesus coming into my life through his body. And I've watched it happen week after week. People who don't come to church and they fold out and they phase out and they're not here anymore and their lives are a wreck 
They're prone to wander, and we're just letting them. We're shooting all of our soldiers right in the face, saying, okay, well, you're prone to wander, but, you know, see you later. Because if you're not here, I am here. I, would you, would you, I don't really need you. I got a whole church full of other people. In fact, I've got my seat and it's full and I'm forgetting about all the people who aren't here normally sit around me. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. You can't bear with people you don't know and share life with. Bearing with one another in love, eager to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Some translations say maintain. The Greek word is preserve. You're holding tight. You have this unity. You're preserving it. It's a big value. It is your family. You preserve that with vigorous intensity. You're preserving the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one God, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, father of all, who is over all, through all, in all. Romans 12, 4 and 5. For as we in one body, we have many members and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, individually members of one another, individually. Raise your hand if you're an individual. You're a member of each other. Turn and make eye contact with someone in the room and say, you need me and I need you in Christ. You need me and I need you in Christ. This is exactly what Paul's getting at, what James is getting at. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Listen, you were saved from, we're going to read it together. Boom. You are saved from your sin, rebellion, death, and eternal separation from the Lord through your faith in King Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection. That's what you're saved from. You're saved for his kingdom come and his will be done. That kingdom is a kingdom of? People! You don't have a kingdom of one hero, one king. You have a kingdom of people. It's a kingdom of people just like you, a new humanity in Christ. You are called to live life together with them, authentically with Christ, for Christ, in Christ. You can't restore people you don't know. You can't sign postcards from places you've never been. This is the gospel. Nothing less. This is what you're saved from. This is what you're saved for. It's certainly, hear me, it's certainly unwise to bear every part of your life to every single person because every single person can't handle that. And some of us are immature and some of us will stomp on each other. And I get that. And you've probably been hurt by church field before. And hear me, church hurt is the worst hurt. In fact, it was church hurt that accidentally got my wife and I here. And somehow I'm the pastor. Boom, praise God. I don't know what he does. God does weird things. But church hurt is the worst hurt. And I'm certain someone's hurt you and someone's convinced you that the way you live your life or who you are or now that you've graduated or now that you're dating someone or because you're a youth kid or because you're, you don't connect with the women the way you think you should, you don't connect to the men, you get some lie in your head that you're disconnected from the body. And slowly that lie leads to you not being here and you fall away from King Jesus. This is exactly what James is talking about. Church, look around. Who's not here? Who's God laying on your heart? It's like, man, why aren't they here? I haven't seen them in a long time. May the spirit move in your heart because you're called to rescue the wanderers. They are wandering and it's on you. 
We cannot pay enough staff in this church to fulfill all the ministry needs. In fact, that'd be a stupid model because this isn't America. This isn't some government where you just pay leaders to function for you. This is a church. We are a kingdom of priests. We're all ministers. We all have the ministry of reconciliation. The thing that Adam and I and all the other ministers here are called to do is to equip the saints to do the ministry of prayer and teaching the word. That's what we're called to. It's on all of us to rescue the wanderers. Who's not here? Our church has been through the ringer with this stuff. We've seen marriages broken down. We've seen kids go astray. We've seen affairs happen. And then we sit back and we say, oh, whoa, why didn't someone say something? Because you didn't say anything. If you see it and you're not saying something and your brother and sister in Christ, you're culpable. Paul goes as far to say he condemns the church for the sin in 1 Corinthians just as much as he condemns the sinners because we're one. Your marriage affects my marriage. Your sin impacts my life. We're all connected. I can't preach this enough in hopes that we'll believe it, that we'll actually walk out of here and try to share life authentically in Christ because this is the New Testament. They spent so much time, money, and energy writing letters to try to get us to understand that we're actually one, that we actually need to spend authentic life together. This is why we ask each other, who do you disciple and who disciples you? Why is that so important? Because of James 5. Do you have an answer to those names in your head? Who do you disciple? Who disciples you? Who do you ask in life, hey, how's your relationship with Jesus going this week? Who who asks you that? Who sent you a text this this last week? Who do you know that's comfortable enough with you to say, hey, how's your relationship with Jesus going? Because we're prone to wander. And James has all these things that we're, we're struggling with and following Christ. How's that going in your life? Or do we just need to be talking about the game or our schooling efforts or our dating life or the funny YouTube video we watch? How's your relationship with Jesus going? Are we rescuers or are we just merely consumers? Our culture has taught us to be consumers, and some of that comes through so much history of things that I don't have time to explain, but you can look at the sociological research and historians who discuss how we got here. We've had several world wars, we've had great depressions, we've had recessions, we have things in general, but even before that, the Bible teaches us that we have a scarcity mentality that draws us away from the Lord and makes us think about ourselves, a self-orbit. How can I take care of me? What is mine? My kingdom come, my will be done. That's the posture of our heart. We're prone to wander. But Jesus calls us to be rescuers, to step into it. Jesus has his own phrase that James is copying about restoring a brother in Matthew 18. We're meant to restore each other, rescue each other. Are we rescuers in our church or are we just consumers? We're just here to take it. Wednesday Wednesday night, I had a real bad dream. Maybe some of you can relate. Maybe some of you are just looking for a good reason to judge me. So here you go. Um, uh, the sort of dream that makes you relapse, makes you question everything, makes you hate your life. You wake up and you're just like, man, everyone's probably mad at me. Oh, I can't believe I did that. But you didn't do anything. It's just a dream, right? But it consumes your mind. You just think, I'm the worst, awful human being. No one is as bad as me. Thank God 
There are three people I text. I can throw their names out right now. I don't want to throw them under the bus, but three guys I text. I'm close enough with them in the fullness of my addiction, in my marriage, in my parenting. One of them was able to joke with me about how Nick would respond because he knows her well enough to, to make light of the situation, which was encouraging to me because I was making myself, I was crucifying myself, hating myself. One of them just immediately started preaching the gospel. One of them doesn't struggle with anything like that. And so he's able to kind of push more towards, hey, why don't you just move through it? Hey, don't, don't give it too much credit. Why don't you just move on? Because that's not who you are. I need those people in my life. If you don't have people that you can text at 6.30 a.m. because you had a bad dream, you're missing the body of Christ. I love you. You're missing it. And I know the people in this room, and I know they're welcoming you to it. It's on you. There are people here that want to rescue you from wandering. There are people who want to share life with you in Christ. You can choose to do it, or you can choose to keep wandering. But that leads to death. Only life comes through Jesus, through his implanted word. In James 5.16, it says to confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. The prayer of a righteous man uh, availeth much, um, and I, I availeth much. There's my, my old English coming out of me. Um, but I wanted to share some personal confession because I think it will relate to you all. Um, as a pastor, as one who really likes to serve other people, as an ENFP, as a whatever you want to tag me as, uh, type 2 personality, whatever, uh, I really like to help other people. I really like to dig in and serve with people. But also, I'm just called to that. I'm called to shepherd people. And it took me a long time in life to accept that. But here we are. Hi, I'm the shepherd. Uh, and so sometimes um, sheep bite and they're mean. And it just happens. And I don't even think they mean to. I give them benefit of the doubt. But there are people who will say something or send me a text that just, just has a biting tone to it. Just has this like, like, well, King David, if you would just recant of your decisions and change your mind. And it just makes me feel like they don't get that I love them. It makes me feel like if I just decided that my family needs to move to Guam, no matter how much we've dug in with these relationships here, it would just be forgotten. And I would just be another pastor on the belt notching a memorial's history and we'd all move on and forget us. And that hurts someone like me who likes to have real relationships with people and really suffer eternally with people in Christ. And so what happens is when these things happen, my temptation is to just perform. Just do whatever I can to make those people happy. I start thinking, man, what is the most profound thing I can say on Sunday? Maybe there's a memorial minute video I need to make. Maybe I need to start sending texts. I know what I'll do. I'll, I'll, instead of having a one-hour prayer time, I'll have a two-hour prayer time, and I'll text twice as many people this week. And then everyone will know that I actually love them, and I'm a good enough pastor. What evil wants for my life, what evil wants more than anything for David Newton, is that I turn away from the love that I have for Christ and because of my love for Christ, my love for you, and instead start loving myself to produce, to perform, to be good enough, to make you like me. And that leads to death. That doesn't satisfy you, that doesn't satisfy me, and that has nothing to do with the truth of King Jesus. And I think that that struggle I have is actually more common. I think that there's a lot of us who are living lives just for other people's ideal of us, just for other people's image of us, and that we're just a caricature we're just constantly moving the tile pieces in our life to build this image so other people think X, Y, Z of us. We're all prone to wander. And I thank God for the rescuers in my life that can speak the gospel and remind me, my role is to love the Lord with all my heart. And through loving the Lord, love others. And in that, he's called me to be a husband, a father, a shepherd. And only through King Jesus can I do those things. Are we being rescuers in Christ or merely consumers? 
This morning, we're going to respond with the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper was a hotly debated, argued thing in the early church because they were struggling with how they treated poor people, how they treated people who arrived late, with class systems, with who was better or worse than others, who was circumcised, who was not. And it all kind of came together at this table. And it upset Paul so much and, and other people who write about it because the point of the Lord's Supper is that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus, that, that his blood covers our sin and that through him we're all unified. And so for all the reasons you have to celebrate the Lord's Supper, to remember King Jesus's blood and his body being broken for your sins, that, that you are eternally saved from your sin, from death, from hell. It's also reminds what we're saved for. We're a kingdom community that comes together. We partake of this together. Why? Because it ripples through eternity and reminds us that we're unified by King Jesus, by his spirit, by his blood. And so as we move during this time, we're going to have a response song, and you can come and get the elements, but I would encourage you to take a moment to grab someone and pray with them, to pray that you would have the posture of a rescuer in Christ. Only Jesus can save, and he's called you to call those who are wandering back to him because of his blood, because he saves. I'd ask you to stand at this time. If you don't know Jesus, this is your time. Maybe you're wandering and you've never given your life to Jesus. Maybe you've wandered and you don't, you don't know where. I want to pray with you. Come forward. We'll pray. Maybe you've wandered from the church. If you're watching from home, if you're here and you're like, man, we need to join the church. We need to quit being uh, 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 spiritual vagrants. You're just going around and, and never committing. Maybe this is your time. I don't know what the Spirit's doing in you. I know that we're prone to wander. And I know that James cares so much at the end of all the encouragements in his letter, he decides to end with restore the wanders. Bring them back to the truth of Jesus Christ. And so I don't know where the Spirit's leading you to for this moment, but I would encourage you to pray against the isolation. I would encourage you to pray against the ways that we build walls from each other and instead we vulnerability welcome others. Who do you disciple? Who disciples you? Who do you ask? How's your relationship with Jesus going? Who asks you that? Do you have those kind of relationships in your life in Christ? Because you're saved for his kingdom come, his will be done. His kingdom includes people in this room and all those who profess Christ as Lord. We have to be having a relationship with him. We have to know that. I'm going to pray, and then you can respond. Father, we pray right now that you would guide us as we hear your word, as we think through what it means to be one body. You tell us to preserve the unity that you've given us that we are only unified by your spirit. Your spirit has brought us together. May your Holy Spirit move us now to grow in that unity, to see each other as eternally bound. Guide us in the vulnerability, in the honesty, in the authenticity that's needed to have those relationships. God, I pray that this body, our church, would be a place for confessing sins and praying with one another. That we'd be a place of, of rescuing wanderers to point them to look to you, Jesus. All authority has been given to you. God, teach our body to be one in you, to function as you've called us, to see your kingdom come and your will be done. Guide us as we respond, as we look to you, Jesus.